This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Good afternoon, and pleased to introduce Dr. Christopher Bolito, who will be speaking to us today on John Paul II's Apologies, the Church Examines Her Conscience. Um, Dr. Bolito um, received his Bachelor of Arts degree, Manya Cum Laude, from New York University, or as many of us know at NYU, where he was university scholar with a double major in journalism and politics and a double minor in classics and religion. He has perennially kept himself ultra busy. Uh, he received his Master of Arts and his PhD in history from Fordham University. He held presidential scholarships there and was a teaching fellow while studying for the doctorate. After he received his doctorate, he was a church history professor at St. Joseph's Seminary for Dunwoody in New York and its Institute of Religious Studies in Yonkers, where he also served as the Institute's Associate Dean. From 2001 to 2004, he was academic editor at Paulist Press in Malwa, New Jersey, while teaching at Fordham's College of Liberal Studies from 2002 to 2004, and serving as a fellow at Fordham Center for Medieval Studies from 2003 to 2004. In 2004, he came to Keene University and became professor of history. Uh, he is presently an associate professor of history, and since 2011, he is also chair of the Department of History at Keene University. Um, in the past, uh, during and after college, uh, Dr. Bolito worked in journalism, including a period at uh, Newsweek magazine, and he also taught English before going on for his doctoral studies at Cardinal Spellman High School in Bronx, New York, which was his alma mater. He is the author of nine books, uh, 101 Questions and Answers on Popes and the Primacy, The Living Church, Church History 101, The General Councils, A History of the 21 Church Councils from Nicaea to Vatican II, and Renewing Christianity, A History of Church Reform from Day One to Vatican II. He is also the author of Nicholas de Clamange, Spirituality, Personal Reform, and Pastoral Renewal on the Eve of the Reformation. In addition, he's co-authored six volumes of collected essays. His scholarly outreach articles have appeared in a number of journals. There are 23 of them, including the Catholic Historical Review, Church History, Christianesimo nella Storia, Reviewed the Histoire Ecclesiastique, America, Commonweal, U.S. Catholic, and other journals. Um, in addition to his writing, his own writing, uh, Dr. Bolito has long experience as an editor. Uh, he is currently academic editor at large for Paulus Press and is the creator and editor of its series Rediscovering Vatican II. He's also the editor in chief of the series Brill's Companions to the Christian Tradition. Uh, I should also add that uh, uh, Dr. Bolito was editor for my book, uh, The Church Unfinished, at Paulus Press. So we the best a, book I ever uh, edited. <laughs> <laughs> you can see it's a mutual admiration. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's why I'm very pleased to be able to introduce him. Uh, he will speak to us this afternoon on John Paul II's Apologies, The Church Examines Her Conscience. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Bolito. And of course, and you just took my notes away, so we're now we're really Sorry. in trouble. Oh, okay. So thank you for coming, and uh, the refreshments in the back. Um, 
so that's, the other connection here, of course, is that this uh, talk was born 10 years ago when the Catholic Theological Society of America decided that they wanted to look at this particular topic and a particular document that the International Theological Commission put out in December 1999, which was kind of the think document behind all of the, this effort here. And they wanted both uh, someone who did church history and somebody who did um, ecclesiology. And so that's where uh, Bernie and I came in because I, around that time I think I was finishing editing the book at Paulist. And so uh, this was born in a discussion at the Catholic Theological Society of America meeting in 2000 and something. Um, and so uh, what you have here is the fruit of that, but also further reflection given the minor events of the last six or eight weeks. You may have noticed some things. Just because what I'm going toward, the, my closing point, is that the whole thing about asking for forgiveness comes from a spirituality of humility. And humility, when I finish being chair for my sins, um, and I, I could tell the chairs in the departments because they're nodding their heads. You never knew how many sins you had until you became chair of a department. Um, is to write a history of humility because humility, I think, is the lost virtue, and I think humility is the problem with the roadblock that we have in American politics. I think it's the problem with the roadblock we have in um, in the church today. And so, I think that the one of the one of the things that struck me about Benedict's resignation was the humility of it. Who the hell walks away from power in this world? Um, and then the striking humility of the new pope as well. So this seems to be something that I think we're, we're, emerging, uh, we're emerging on. So I hope that you have the outline that I gave you. I'm normally not one, uh, I tell my students all the time, don't put up slides and read your PowerPoint slides. But since we're doing text blocks, this is the easiest way for us, for us to do this. So if you've never, um, we need some outlines. Maybe somebody can pass those out. Thank you. So if you've never uh, been in a, in a talk by an obsessive compulsive anal retentive, welcome. Um, for those of you who are not PhDs, the rest of you know what that is. Um, and so I really want to look at text blocks because that's actually what I do. I'm an historian of, of, uh, of ideas. So um, what, what I'm arguing is that this is fundamentally an overlooked hermeneutic, right? So I'm here among academics, so I have to use the word hermeneutic um, once or twice. Um, an overlooked uh, legacy. And the problem with apologies nowadays is that there's apology chic. Listen to people's apologies. If you were offended by what I said, I'm sorry. What you're saying is that I'm sorry that you were offended, but you're still stupid and ugly. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's are, are we apologizing for your feelings or are you apologizing for my actions? And then we have apology chic, right, of course. And this leads us to Bill Clinton and, you know, it depends what your definition of is is. For what are you apologizing? And I think this New Yorker cartoon really kind of captures it very well. And apologizing is only half of the story. So there was a, a, a Newsweek magazine, uh, for those of you who may not know, there used to be a magazine called Newsweek. It now only appears online. Um, had, used to have a column on the back called My Turn. And the My Turn was a personal essay about something. And it was usually very, very poignant to the point of being wrenching. And this was written by an adult child of an alcoholic. This was maybe 20 years ago. And the father, at a Thanksgiving celebration, pulled the son aside. The son is an adult at this point, And says, I was a terrible father. I beat your mother. I beat you kids. 
I neglected you, I drank my salary, I know that I really did not start you in life the way you should have started, I'm sorry. Okay? And the author went on to write, no dad, not okay. That may make you feel better, it may be one of your 12 steps, but it has nothing to do with my feelings right now. So the other side of apologizing is being forgiven. And what do you do when the person who you have offended isn't alive? Galileo or Jews during the Second Crusade. What do you do if the person refuses to give you absolution? These are a lot of the kind of the questions that came up. I have to tell you that as a Sicilian, a full-blown Sicilian, my four grandparents came through Ellis Island and I grew up in the Bronx. Forgiveness is not something that was part of our vocabulary. <laughs> we, we will wait years to get you back. And we do not, by the way, Sicilians do not stab you in the back. We stab you right in the stomach so you know it's us. <laughs> um, so there's forgiving and remembering and there's forgiving and forgetting. Okay? Nevertheless, John Paul II, in, in, in what I think is the, is the, I can't believe people aren't talking about this more, issued what some people call apologies more than 100 times. Mostly they were not apologies. Mostly they were asking God for forgiveness because there was no group to whom you could apologize. So how do you apologize to, to use another example, women throughout history? There's no one place you can go to apologize to to one person, right, or one woman. How do you do that? So most of the time what he's doing is he's asking God for forgiveness. Nevertheless, I think we'll use the word apology um, as a shorthand. And so this New Yorker cartoon, I think, captures it. So wh why does church history come into play? Well, church history is an important tool of a prism through which to, to look at this. And so I've given you this rather large text block from an article that John O'Malley did um, about 30 years ago. I have to tell you that I exchanged emails with John O'Malley, the great Jesuit John O'Malley, at the beginning and at the end of the last six weeks of excitement at the beginning on the first day because everybody is calling everyone else in this rather small world of people that who, who comment on these events. And I think one of the interesting things was, did you notice how many laymen and women were commenting on the papal resignation? That, that's a fruit of the council that we overlook. Um, and so I, uh, I, you know, I can't do it, ask John O'Malley. John will say, I can't do it, ask David Gibson. David Gibson asks, I can't do it, ask Chris Polito. And it kind of goes in a circle for an hour. And I said to John, I bet you're getting a lot of phone calls. I emailed him and he responded, yes, I'm hitting delete a lot. And then the day of the election, John, of course, is a Jesuit. I sent uh, the message, the Italian auguri, to three Jesuits that I know. Um, and uh, uh, I wrote, I wrote a, um, a Jesuit Franciscan, question mark, a Franciscan Jesuit, question mark, and John responded, your confusion is well grounded. <laughs> so he tells us what? Church history and its uses must be conceived as liberating. I think a lot of people are afraid to study church history because of the ickiness that's there. Now to me, what I tell people, and I say this as someone who, my wife is a cancer survivor, you know, I don't want to, why don't you go for the mammograms? Not my wife, who worked with cancer patients. I, why, do you, why don't you go for them? Because cancer's in my family and I don't want to know. Okay, that's dumb. It's not going to go away because you don't talk about it. It's better to be armed. And so if you look at church history, it's liberating. They, church history and its uses, liberate us from the limitations of the past at the same time that they enhance our appreciation of the past. 
Church history studies the contingencies of human existence in the past. Its task is to render past expression of our tradition intelligible precisely as they are located in limited, unique, culturally conditioned, never to repeated situations. So please remember that history does not repeat itself. Human stupidity repeats itself, but history cannot repeat itself because contingencies change. Its task, church history's task, is not, on the other hand, to render any of these contingencies sacrosanct and to insulate them from critical revision, especially insofar as they may still be operative in the church today. So we take the lessons from the past and we try to um, employ them today. Or, as John Henry Newman said, well, what was the greater scandal, the pedophiles or the cover-up? Listen to what Newman says, and he could have been commenting on that. Facts are omitted in great histories or glosses put upon memorable acts because they are thought not edifying, whereas of all scandals, such omissions, such glosses, are the greatest scandal. Forgetting is a scandal, and we do so at our peril. Or, as Leo XIII said when he opened the archives, the famed secret archives, the first law of history is not to dare to utter falsehood, the second not to fear to tell the truth. And so way ahead of the Y2K, remember Y2K? What were we worried about? In 98 and 99 and 2000, I gave 75 talks, or as my wife says, I gave the same talk 75 times, <laughs> about Y2K and apocalypticism and blah, 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 blah. And I always got three questions at the end. <clears throat> Nostradamus, and if I never hear his name or St. Malachi's again, I will be happy. Appearances of the Virgin Mary. I come from New Jersey, so there were a lot of people slicing open tomatoes, and the Virgin Mary appeared in that. And Y2K, the computer virus. Do you remember that? Now, if you remember, on December 31st, 1999, we woke up and the computers had not crashed in Tokyo. And if they hadn't crashed in Tokyo, we're all right, right? So that's when people started to get interested in Y2K, in 1998 and 1999. JP2 saw this coming in 94. And he wrote a document called Tertio Millennio Adveniente, on the coming of the third millennium, in 94. And I posit that the most important paragraph for this hermeneutic, I think the hermeneutic of his papacy, or is this asking for forgiveness, is this document, uh, number 33. Hence it is appropriate that as the second millennium of Christianity draws to a close, the church should be more fully con conscious of the sinfulness of her children. I'm going to get to that phrase in a second recalling all those times in history when they departed from the gift of the Spirit of Christ and His Gospel, and instead of offering to the world the witness of a life inspired by the values of faith, indulged in ways of thinking and acting which were truly forms of counter-witness and scandal. This is eight years before Boston Globe broke the sex abuse scandal story, which, remember, was not broken by the Boston Globe. The Boston Globe won a Pulitzer Prize because a number of brave priests got sick of cardinal law not listening to them, and they gave the story to the Boston Globe. Then the Globe went and, and expanded it and did the reporting. But that story was not born in the Boston Globe, it was given to them. The sinfulness of her children is not the sinfulness of the church in John Paul II's mind. And I went back and I looked at the Latin, and it does say the sinfulness of her children. I'm going to come back to that in a moment because I think that that is a flaw. As much as I praise this effort, as much as I think it's overlooked, I think that there's a fundamental flaw in it. So he starts doing these uh, asking apologies, asking for forgiveness. He had been doing them already for about 12 years. In fact, one of the first things he did after he was elected was, was open an inquiry into the Galileo trial. In 79, I think he did that, and then I think the, the statement was made in 90 or 91. So this was 
in his mind. Gearing up to Y2K, he asked the International Theological Commission to write a white paper explaining the theology behind what he was doing. That International Theology Commission came under the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, one Joseph Ratzinger, who was very uncomfortable with all of this apologizing. Very uncomfortable. And that document came out in December of 1999. And it's this document that um, it's this document that Bernie and I explored um, in, if you look at the back page of your outline, um, in uh, Horizons, the Journal of the College Theology Society, um, which comes out, if you don't know, from a little place called Villanova. You may have heard of it, tried to get parking. Um, and so I have a, the history side of it, and Bernie has the theological side of it there. And that document came out in December of 99, and here I think is John Paul II leading the way. I think that this photo right here is the most important photo in the papacy of John Paul II. Because once he put that document there, and we're going to read that text in a second, once he put that document there, he stood there. And he is, I think, not bowing that much, because I think already the Parkinson's had robbed, he started to stoop in that way, right? You'd say that? Mm -hmm. He's probably bowing his head a little bit, but that, that robbed that vitality of him, especially at the very end. And I remember thinking that wall, that stark wall, is church history rebuking who? Us. And him standing there in our place and accepting the rebuke. So the most famous moment in that was the first Sunday of Lent in March of the year 2000 where he celebrated what was called the Day of Pardon Mass, where a number of people offered prayers during the prayer of the faithful asking God for forgiveness. So um, for instance, the famous confession of sins against the people of Israel, it is this text here, God of our fathers, that he prayed earlier in Lent, which he then put in the wall. You see it in his hand there. So the introduction was, let us pray that in recalling the sufferings endured by the people of Israel throughout history, Christians will acknowledge the sins committed by not a few of their number against the people of the covenant. Notice that it does not say the church, it says the Christians, and the blessings, and in this way they will purify their hearts. And JP2 says, God of our fathers, you chose Abraham and his descendants to bring your name to the nations. We are deeply saddened by the behavior of those who in the course of history have caused these children of yours to suffer. And asking your forgiveness, we wish to commit ourselves to genuine brotherhood with the people of the covenant. Probably the most famous of those, and of course, the tremendous change, the sea change, moving from Nostra Tate through, um, through the uh, entire papacy of John Paul II, changing significantly the relationship of Catholics and Jews. JP2 saying, for instance, Jews are our elder brothers and that the first covenant is not superseded by the second covenant. It remains fully in play and fully valid. So now let's move to some issues, because not everyone was really happy with this, including Anthony Bolito, my father, who at this moment, when he heard this on the radio, being a lovel lovely but grumpy old Italian man, with a magnet on his refrigerator, still in the Bronx, that said, God says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. What is this issue? 
if, if the Pope says, I'm sorry, and we could be wrong on some things, does that mean we're wrong on other things? And Cardinal Cassidy, uh, this, is, these, this is just a photograph of the cover of his memoirs, which I edited for, for him, um, when he was talking about the document called We Remember. If you've ever read the Holocaust document, it, it is proof of what happens when a committee writes a document. It, it, is, it is not synthesized. You actually, you know, it's put together. It's a really good document mm, with some major flaws. And Cassidy said that as we were putting that document together, this was the question. The greatest difficulty was the fear that if you say the church has been wrong in the past. Now, please notice that Cardinal Cassidy has not said the sons and daughters of the church or the children of the church or Christians. He has said the church has been wrong in the past, then it can be wrong today and tomorrow. Which is why, go back to what O'Malley was saying, some people say, oh, don't look at the bad things in history, we'll just move forward, because if you start trying to talk about things in the past, you'll pull on a string. Who do you ask forgiveness, and who forgives? Can Galileo forgive? No, he's dead. Can the Jews of the Crusade forgive? Well, which Jews? I tell my students all the time, this is why people love to call to, to dialogue with Catholics, because there's one phone number, right? But if you want to dialogue with Jews, which Jews? If you want to dialogue with Lutherans, which Lutherans, right? But Catholics, you got one phone number, and, and you can just make that call. So what do you do? Can descendants forgive? And what if they choose not to forgive? And so now I want to really start critiquing this document, Memory and Reconciliation. We have we have an identity of victimhood, right? Some people really embrace victimhood. If, if you don't think Americans embrace victimhood, you've never watched one episode of Oprah, right? I'm a victim. This is who I am. I'm never going to get rid of this, never going to let go of this because this is who I am, right? And I always feel badly for that person. I can't identify. You know, I've never been a victim of sexual abuse. I grew up with great priests, but I, I can't identify with that. But you kind of say, you know people who haven't gotten past or over something. I'm not saying it's easy, I'm not saying it's hard, but you know people who, who, who right? So we have that identity of victimhood. And yet forgiving is very liberating. I'm told, I don't forgive people, remember, I'm Sicilian. But I'm told that it's very, and I, and I know that when I am forgiven, because I'm married, when I am forgiven, I feel great, to the point where when my wife says it's okay, I go to her three more times and say it's okay. She says, okay, I said it's okay. Stop now. Right? But you're married to my wife, right? <laughs> I, I'm saying the same, same thing. Same thing. Right? So, so does purification of memory absolve? Now look at what memory and reconciliation says. The same thing that's up here is, is on your paper. The memory of division and op opposition is purified and substituted by a reconciled memory to which everyone in the church is invited to be open and to become educated. What's that say? What that's saying is forgive and forget. When I gave talks like this six or eight years ago, I criticized that a great deal. The older I get, this may be a function of age, the older I get, the more I'm thinking that that's pretty healthy. Forgiving and forgetting would allow you to move on. My fear is that folks will say, well, we'll forgive and we'll forget and we won't have learned the lesson from it. That's, that's the part that makes me nervous. A better statement, I think, 
comes from the jo uh, 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 a joint statement of an interreligious assembly in Rome. Now remember there was the interreligious prayer service that was in Assisi in 86, mm -hmm. where there's John Paul II and there are these representatives of all of these other faiths and there are all of the Vatican officials. Take a close look. There is someone who is not there. Ratzinger was wholly against that meeting because he says when you put all the representatives of all the faiths on one line, we look equal and we are not equal. Christianity has it above everyone else and then we got Dominus Jesus that said Catholic, Roman Catholicism has it above everyone else. This is forgive and remember and I still think that this is healthy. As we study the history of other religious traditions as well as of our own, we confess that much has gone wrong in the past. We must recognize and acknowledge these wrongs. We must express our sorrow about them and condemn what deserves condemnation. We commit ourselves to try to do everything in our power so that such actions or omissions need not be, uh, not be repeated. Such steps can foster a process of understanding and reconciliation. This is kind of the trust but verify aspect of this, right? History tells us that we have to be careful that we don't make these mistakes um, again. So it leads to another issue. Can the church be sinful or just her members? And is that the same thing? And the, this expression of historic firewalls came up between Bernie and I when we were working on this eight or ten years ago because we each kind of wrote our paper and then we, we exchanged papers and we talked, we talked about this. This notion that, you know, um, now listen carefully to how I'm going to put this. Growing up in a very strict Catholic Sicilian household in the Bronx. In my father's house, everyone had a right to my father's opinion. Right? I mean, that's because I said so. That's kind of strict authority. Remember the first time I opened my mouth and I told my daughter because I said so, and I looked around for my father. The argument from authority, right? Because I said so doesn't really work because there's a firewall. Because I said so, I mean, I'm not culpable. I cannot absolutely be wrong. So is there a firewall between those alive today and those now dead? In other words, Catholics did terrible things in the past. Am I, do I bear their guilt? I would argue no. Do I bear the burden of that guilt? I don't know that I bear the burden, but I think I should be aware of it. And I think forgetting there is probably a bad idea. And here's the really troubling one. The church as an institution versus the church as the people of God. Matt Malone has a great column in of many things about three weeks ago where he says the problem with talking about the people of God is it puts the laity up against the bishops. Or the voice of the faithful with whom I am very sympathetic talks about taking back the church. It's the bishop's church too. Whether you like that fact or you don't like that fact, it's like saying there are seven days in a week. Whether you like it or don't like it, it's a fact. So the question is, and I think Matt's, this was one of his of many things columns, I think Matt's very helpful there. When we talk about the church, or we talk about institution, and I've, and I've had to say this to reporters a lot, when you talk about the church, do you mean the hierarchy? That's different, that's a piece of the church, but it's not the whole thing. So is it possible that the church can be sinless while her members are sinful? Leads us to Cardinal Cassidy again. Just as Catholics understand that they are linked to the merits of the saints, they are similarly linked to the sins of the wrongdoers. Linked, you notice he says. Not freed from, not necessarily bearing the burden, not bearing the personal responsibility, yet 
having some link to it. And so let's look at some examples um, of how we might explore this notion of personal and corporate responsibility. One comes from the era of Vatican II, and that is the first, remember, the, that's the next thing we have to look for. Uh, we were talking about the Pope's, Francis's choice of Secretary of State is going to tell us something. That first encyclical is going to tell us something, right? Um, and I think Benedict has to be very careful about not publishing anything, perhaps ever, <laughs> anymore. Um, that first encyclical. So Ecclesiam Suam is what Paul writes in the summer between Vatican II's meetings in the fall of 63 and the fall of 64. This is his first encyclical. A vivid and lively self-awareness on the part of the church inevitably leads to a comparison between the ideal image of the church as Christ envisaged, his holy and spotless bride, and the actual image which the church presents to the world today. This is the difference between the four Gospels and Acts of the Apostles. I love Acts of the Apostles. Everyone's arguing immediately. I love it. It just makes me feel okay. I'm a good Christian because they're all hating each other, so that's good. Right? Nothing's changed, obviously being sarcastic here. But the actual image of the church will never attain to such a degree of perfection, beauty, holiness, and splendor that it can be said to correspond perfectly with the original conception in the mind of him who fashioned it. Or, as I tell my students and audiences, think please right now of the day you were married, ordained, or took vows. You got that day? That's the dumbest day of your life because you have no idea what you're talking about. Absolutely no idea. You don't know what in sickness and in health means. You don't know what forever means. You don't mean obedience means, am I right, sister? Until you're challenged by it, and then you understand what the words mean. That's why we have to think of baptism as a living sacrament, as confirmation as a living sacrament. So here's the deal. We know we're never going to get to perfection, and yet we are never absolved from trying to get as close as we can to perfection. That's, what's, that's, that's what living a spiritual life means, and in our view, living what a, a Christian life. Or, as Unitatis Red Integratio said it, and it's interesting that this is in the document on ecumenism, every renewal of the church essentially consists in an increase of fidelity to the church's own calling. In its pilgrimage on earth, and Yves Congar said that that was the single most important teaching of Vatican II, the recovery of the notion that we are a pilgrim church. In its pilgrimage on earth, Christ summons the church to continual reformation. It's interesting that they use the word renewal and then re reformare of which it is always in need insofar as it is an institution of human beings here on earth. Or, as Lumen Gentium puts it, the church containing sinners in its own bosom is at one and the same time always in need of purification, and it pursues unceasingly penance and renewal. I think that we can agree with all of those statements. Now the question is, what do you mean by church? That's the key question. And it takes us back to memory and reconciliation. And that document, I think, really wants to put up a firewall, really wants to say that the church, whatever it means by the church, and I think it means the hierarchical institution and magisterium, cannot be wrong. It is also important, it is important also to make clear what is referred to when the text speaks of the church. It is not a question of the historical institution alone or solely the spiritual communion of those who har whose hearts are illumined by the faith. So it's not the past institution, and it's not the church as the people of God. Already I'm uncomfortable. The church is understood as the community of the baptized, inseparably visible and operating in history under the direction of her pastors, 
united as a profound mystery by the action of the life-giving spirit. Okay, but there are all sorts of times where we have not acted under the direction of our pastors because our pastors have not been giving good direction. I give you the Great Western Schism. One pope, two pope, three popes, right? Here a pope, there a pope, everywhere a pope pope. What do you do in that situation? Each baptized person can be considered to be at the same time a child of the church in that he, and I checked the Latin, and it does say he, is generated in her to divine life and mother church in that by his faith and love he cooperates in giving birth to new children for God. So what's going on there? So I can be a member of the church as an institution and I can be a member of the people of God, but what's the connection? Is it but or is it and? It is opportune to take into account, think of everything that Cardinal Cassidy said so far, it is opportune to take into account in recognizing past wrongs in the present day subjects who could best assume responsibility for these, the distinction between magisterium and authority in the church. Not every act of authority has magisterial value, which is precisely what my father thinks. The, the single most misunderstood Catholic teaching of the last 200 years is what people call the doctrine of papal infallibility, which is exactly what it is not. Or as one of my students joked on Facebook the day that Benedict resigned, his status went from infallible to it's complicated. <laughs> it is the teaching of the infallible teaching authority of the Pope. Let us be clear, Benedict no longer has that. Benedict has no longer the authority. He used the word renounce. The analogy is Obama can launch nuclear codes. Mitt Romney can't. Or to use a person who used to be able to nu launch nuclear codes, George W. Bush can't anymore. Right? The authority issue. Not every act of authority has magisterial value, and so behavior contrary to the gospel by one or more persons vested with authority does not involve, per se, the magisterial charism. And that's when I start to get a little uncomfortable. Because my question would be, well, then what does? If we are known by our actions, and our actions run counter to magisterial authority, then haven't you, by your actions, just compromised magisterial authority? That makes me uncomfortable. Which is assured by the Lord to the church's bishops, apparently not to the laity, and consequently does not require any magisterial act of reparation. So here's where I come to. Aren't church leaders sons and daughters of the church? Or, if you were in a crass, annoyed mood, aren't church leaders sons of the church? Right? So if sons and daughters of the church can be sinful, and you are a member of that church, and you act in a sinful way, why isn't the institution compromised? It, it makes for a very antiseptic ecclesiology. If we separate the sons and daughters from the church, is that a distinction without a difference? My answer to that is yes. I think it is a distinction without a difference. And isn't holiness in the church the same as holiness of the church? So what can some of our final thoughts be? Here's my question. I always tell my students, I'm not interested in answers. I'm interested in questions. If I can teach you to ask a good question, I've done my job. Can Christians bear the burdens of past sins corporately without being responsible for them personally? I think the answer is yes. 
Does the individual sin make the corporate church guilty? My answer to that question is another question. Why not? Why is that so threatening? What are we afraid of? I want Hans Kung to answer that question. After all, he's been thrown out already, so. <laughs> Not quite, but. Now this was translated in Commonweal in 66. Already in 66, he said, Vatican II is being turned back. It's a very, this is a quote from a very, very disappointed article. Why can't a church, which according to the common judgment of Catholics can err, also show that it is capable of truly Christian conversion and of changing its views? That notion of conversion, which is so strong in the documents of Vatican II and of JP II as well. Such a church is far more convincing, dare I use the word, credible, to the present world than one whose motto is the ecclesiastical equivalent of the party is and was always wrong. So the answer to the question, what are we afraid of, is we can change and it's okay. You know, everyone has said this, right? Once the church allows women to be ordained in seven or eight hundred years, the piece of paper will say, as the church has always taught, right? That's the old, that's the old uh, line about that. And so I think that we can be aware of the past without being bound by the past. I think that's the key lesson here. And we forget the past at our own peril. And so I would posit that asking for forgiveness is a spirituality of humility, and that this spirituality of humility is the absolute key to the papacy of John Paul II. And I think that we need to talk about it more and more. And I think now, having gone through the papacy of Benedict XVI, we can pick up that discussion again from the resignation, which was incredibly humble and noble, to what looks to be a papacy of the poor, by the poor, and for the poor. Amen? Thank you. So nobody ever wants to ask the first question or make the first comment, so we'll skip it and go to the second one. <laughs> As you're talking, uh, some young persons have been reading that book called Swerve, which is a real indictment of the centuries, but made New York Times bestsellers. But it has a whole chapter on Giordano Bruno. And as you're talking about uh, what if the person's not here, if you go to the Piazza dei Fiori, or the, uh, which is the open-air market during the day and then at night, kind of uh, all restaurants, there stands Giordano on the spot where he was burned. Uh, and, uh, tension between that and Vatican II's teaching about it's not truth or error that have rights, it's persons have rights, and they don't lose them even if you judge them in error. Uh, and so that, that kind of tension with these documents in terms of looking to the past and what the church did. Right, and I think that creative tension has to be there. That's one of the things I was asked by American Magazine, uh, here's a funny story, I was asked by American Magazine to do an assessment of the papacy of Benedict XVI. And I first said, no. Because they said, we want you to give us five achievements, five um, failures, and five unanswered questions. 
and I said, I can't come to five achievements. And people kind of are shocked when I say that because it was, it was a great papacy. It was a, a really interesting pope wrapped in a very flawed papacy in that he had lousy advisors and he could get his message out and things like that. I was convinced that I was not the first person to have, asked, to have been asked to write the story, that other people had been asked <laughs> to write the story. But then when I started to ask around and say to people, now this is like Tuesday, the resignation was on a Monday, Tuesday, I to say to people, I, I gotta get this in on the thing on Saturday, can I send it to you on Thursday and give me some feedback. By the way, were you asked to write this? And everybody I know said no. And I finally got to Jim Martin, who said, no, I was in the meeting. I, it, it was me. I was the one who suggested you. And I said, thanks, Jim. Um, all of these other people said, we're so glad we weren't asked to write that, write that one. But one of the points that I made in there was the terrible situation of, the, of what has happened to theology and theologians over the last, now, 30 years of, in effect, error has no rights and the, the lack of due process um, to someone like Elizabeth Jones or, or, or Roger Hayden. I think that that's something that we need. That, my fear is that we're not learning that lesson. Um, in, in, a, in a papacy especially that was trumpeted for human rights. Uh, Just one comment. I, I think the biggest change he made was when he gave that talk before Christmas to the Curia. Vatican II spoke of the church in and through the churches. Right. And he spoke to the curia and he said, the church is in and through the church. And he, in that statement, re-empowered the curia in a way that is the big question right now. It, that's, the, that's the talk that uh, uh, John, if you haven't read Theological Studies last September, John, John O'Malley did an analysis of that talk, which Kamanchak had done earlier in, in America magazine. And he says, that's the key right there. That's the whole, where he said, when Benedict XVI said that it's a church of continuity and discontinuity, as opposed to every other permutation of that, the Bologna school continuity in, dis in discontinuity, discontinuity in continuity, where John essentially said reform's no longer a four-letter word that we can talk about. But when you talk about reform, you have to talk about, you don't, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So to talk about reform is by definition to talk about deform. You have to be comfortable enough to do that. Okay. So, so how do we then think about, because I think you know, much of what you say is just a lot of, along the lines of what I've been sort of pondering myself, but it does seem like appropriate that we need to think about the ways in which the magisterial teaching of the church is reliable. And an awful lot of you know, people in the pews rely on that, but theologians rely on it too, and you know, that that has to be, so how do we just, there, it seems to me there must, there, we need to be able to make some kind of distinction that, that has a difference. Mm -hmm. but, it, but maybe the way in which we, we have been talking about it isn't adequate, you know, the, the uh, sons and daughters versus the church itself. I think it has to do with so buy-in. I think it has to do with buy-in and credibility. Mm -hmm. You know, in any company they say, if we're going to make change, you can either make change by throwing a thunderbolt from the top, or you can bring people together to a consensus. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that I think that that's why people were angry about humanity vitae. You know, there was a discussion, there was a consensus, and that the decision was entirely against that consensus. And so, one of one of the things that, that I, I, I was talking to, to Grant at Commonwealth about doing a piece on credibility. Why are so many people saying? 
Benedict could not have resigned just for his health. There's got to be something else. It's, it's, it's the Vatican League's document. It's got to be, you know, the sex abuse. You know. And my attitude is, look at him. He's, he's, he's an old 85, you know? And I think he was looking at JP2 and didn't want to die. If he goes into a, a coma, we're in trouble. So there's that notion of, of a credibility crisis. I think magisterial teaching that emerges from the periphery and goes to the center, reaches a critical mass, and then is shared from the center with the periphery would have much greater credibility because there would be a marriage of sons and daughters and institution and magisterium defined very narrowly with magisterium, how I think it should be defined in the Newman notion of the people of holy faith and the census fidelium. And the, the problem is that we're dealing with with an either or, and we need to go to a both end. How we do that structurally is an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, we still have to put whichever model you have. You have to find a way of describing that as reliable. Right, right. But I think it has a greater chance of being reliable if there are more people involved in it with greater experiences around the globe, and if it emerges periphery, center, periphery.
can't accept personal responsibility, but I'll, I'll be responsible in terms of I was part of the corpus, I was part of the body. Well, how do you relate with that? Right, right. Well, one of the reasons, <laughs> I, I have a friend who, who studies the Japan, the, the war crimes trial in Japan. He says one of the reasons they were so wildly popular in Japan was that the Japanese could say they did it. Mm -hmm. And then I'm, I'm kind of clear on that. I think maybe another semantic is that, is that is the mystical body of Christ. I think one of the great unintended consequences of the Protestant Reformation is that in the Middle Ages, when people talked about the middle, mystical body of Christ, they were not talking about the Eucharist. They were talking about us sitting in this room right now. And when, when we began to go from transubstantiation to consubstantiation to, to memorial um, and not sacrifice, you lost the richness of that language. Because to talk about the mystical body of Christ was to beg the question, well, are you talking about the Eucharist, and do you really think it's the Eucharist? And that was just lost. Um, and that has not come back as much. That was bubbling in, in the Nouvelle Theology. It was bubbling, but it hasn't, it hasn't become part of the parlance. Thank you for coming. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.